This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Today, I want you to just kind of give me a second to think through Colossians chapter 1. All right, the, the back story for this is Paul has never been to this church. The Apostle Paul is the author of the book Colossians, which is a letter to the church in Colossae, Greece. All right, and we, we recognize that he, he, he kind of writes this letter because of an opportunity. It's an opportunity from two people that he's met in prison. He met this guy named Epaphras. Who, who really came to serve him kind of on a missions trip. And then he met Philemon, who was a, a slave who had ran away. And, and he ministers him, leads him to the Lord, and then sends him back to be reunited uh, with his master, to have that relationship restored with his master. There's a, a brilliant book in, in the Bible about relationships that are restored, which is the letter that Paul sends with Philemon. It's called Philemon. All right? um, but we recognize this tension that Paul has never been there at the very beginning of this chapter in Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 1, where, where he's writing, says, I, I want you to realize that I continue to work as hard as I know how for you, also for the Christians over at Laodicea, which is another town in Greece, not too far from Colossae, all right? Not many of you have met me face to face, but doesn't that doesn't make a di any difference, right? Now, know that I'm on your side. Pay attention to this. Right alongside you, you're not in this alone. I, I want you to hear that today. Isn't it good to know that you're not in what, whatever you're going through, you're, you're not in this alone. Not only are there people in, in this room that are, that are here, that there's a, a sense of community. This is what the local church is about. But, but Paul's writing to people he's never met. He's never been faced. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know, we've never been face to face, but you're not in this alone. Like we're praying for you, we're believing for you, we're trusting God for you. There are people right now, this is hard for us because we don't live in this reality. There are people right now who are praying for you that you have never met. There are people who are believing God for you that you have never come face to face with. Isn't that a good thing to know? Like that, that you're not in this alone. And he continues this sentiment in verse 5. Though I'm a long way off true... And you may never even lay eyes on me, but believe me, I'm on your side, right beside you. I'm delighted to hear, look at this, uh, of the careful and orderly ways that you conduct your affairs. And I'm impressed with the solid substance of your faith in Christ. Now, he, he's never met them, but he's learned of them through Epaphras, who is essentially their pastor. now there with him, who's ministering to him. And Paul writes this letter hoping to make a difference because there's some temptations that are rising up in this church community. And I want you to notice the, the pattern that stays the pattern throughout the entirety of this letter. He starts with thankfulness. Now again, you can make a point or you can make a difference, but you rarely get a chance to make 
both of those. And he doesn't start with making a point. He starts with expressing gratitude. He starts with conveying his thankfulness. What a, what a wonderful lesson for us. Right? We, we, we probably should lead with gratitude a lot more. But then he makes Jesus the primary issue. He makes Jesus the prime. In, in the, the first chapter, the, the Christology that's presented to us, the, the person of Christ that he conveys in the first chapter of Colossians is thoroughly beautiful writing. It's widely regarded by theologians to be one of the very first hymns of the Christian church. And what he does, and he does this throughout the entirety of this book, is he kind of leads with thankfulness and then he brings the perspective back to Christ. Why, why does he make Jesus the primary issue? Because every issue is secondary to Jesus. All right, let, let, me, let me just make that practical. You want to win in your finances? All right, then the issue isn't that you need to learn a bunch of budgetary stuff. I mean, that comes along later. That's secondary. The issue, first and foremost, is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over your finances. You want to win in your marriage? Oh, sure, there's some communication tips that we can do. There's some stuff that we can talk about, setting aside some date nights. and those. But if you want to win in your marriage, the first question is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over your marriage. Jesus is the primary issue. And there's a problem, right? There's a problem in this church, which is why the Apostle Paul was writing this letter at this moment. So, so it's so odd... Paul begins this letter where he knows that he's writing to address a problem, and he doesn't start with highlighting the problem. Instead, he leads with thankfulness, and then he points them to Jesus, but now he's getting ready to do his work. All right, he's, re he's getting ready at this point in the letter to actually start going to work, and he's really going to, in this moment, point us to what we really need. So we're going to go to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read this out of the message paraphrase. Now, many of you may not understand Bible translations. Okay, so if you read out of the ESV, this is a word-by-word -word translation of the Bible. A lot of times I use the New Living, the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is a phrase-by-phrase phrase translation. They go phrase, and then they put it in kind of a modern language, and here's the next phrase. Uh, the, the NIV is probably the most exhaustive uh, ever translation into English. All right? More scholars involved in that than any, and, and again, more of a phrase-by-phrase but this is a paraphrase. When you read the, the message, this is one guy, Eugene Peterson, who is taking the original text and conveying it into modern language. And this unique presentation is so powerful. Look at this. My counsel for you, this is the Apostle Paul going straight to work. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You've received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. You're well constructed upon Him. 
you know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into Thanksgiving. Do you notice what happened? Again, instead of giving advice, he points them to Jesus. Instead of getting deep into the mire of what they're going through, he again points and redirects their hearts to Jesus, which reminds me of something. I want you to just give me a second so I can explain this. We don't often need new advice. We most often need renewed obedience. We get into situations, God, help me get through this. Get, show me how to do this. And God's going, huh? We, we've been through this before. I mean, like literally last week, you're praying. I, I told, you need me to tell you again? I mean, did you notice what Paul said? School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. I mean, we live today in an information age where there's, there's more information that's available to you than to any singular person in human history, okay? I mean, more information. How many of y'all sitting around talking about something at dinner? You know how this goes, right? You start disagreeing about what year that album came out. Like, are they married? How old are they? What do you do? Pull out Google, boom, boom, boom. Oh, no. Like, we went and saw a, a concert this past week, and I made the mistake of telling my wife, that band looks so old. <laughs> to which then I Googled the age of the singer to find out that he's my age. <laughs> it was a mistake, okay? More information available. But you know what's true about information? Information is not transformative. With all that information, we still aren't getting it right. I mean, just go back to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus made it really simple for us. He's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the entirety of the law? Jesus replied in Matthew 22, you must love the Lord your God. Look at this. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Complete, just complete adoration, response, devotion to God. And you love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's God, me, and my neighbor all in this. Really simple, not easy. All right, so I'm just going to confess now, if we're handing out grades on that one, your pastor is not getting 100 today, okay? And sometimes we're going, hey, God, I'm just struggling my marriage. I don't, I don't know what to do. And God's like, no, no. You, you remember when you started this? Like you were doing what? You were going out on dates. You were spending time together. You were talking. You were enjoying. Like, just go back to what you were doing and renew the obedience. Most often, we don't need new advice. We need renewed obedience. Paul takes them again and focuses their hearts 
on Jesus. And number two, I want you to see this. It takes time. It takes time. Pay attention to the metaphors the Apostle Paul is using throughout this. You are rooted in him. You are built upon him. You have been taught about him. Think about those. To be rooted. Right, Jesus even tells a, a parable about different plants. And one of those is a plant that comes up very quickly but never establishes its roots. When the sun comes out, it, it kills it. Why? Because roots take time. Roots take time. It takes time to build the right foundation and then build on top of it. It takes time to learn and grow and be taught and grow in the grace and knowledge of our. It takes time. And you know what? If something takes time, you can't rush it. And that is a hard truth for our culture. Because what do we, we always want a shortcut or a silver bullet. Give me the, the three steps to bypass the ten steps. Give me the pill that I can take to get, because I don't want to go through the process. I want to cheat the process. But if something is a process, you can't cheat it. Because if you try to cheat what can only work as a process, you might get the end result, but you will never keep the end result. And here's something for many of us in the room. If you're early in the process, give yourself some grace. Give yourself some grace. There's some of us that you might be five or ten years into this journey of following Jesus and you're expecting out of yourself what you see from people who are 30 or 40 years into this journey. Be patient and give yourself some grace. Don't compare your start or your middle to someone else's end. This is a huge problem culturally. Right? We, we got young people going in way too much debt to try to achieve the lifestyle of their parents that their parents spent a lifetime building up to in the first few years of their adult professional career. It is not realistic. Don't compare your start or your middle to other people's end. But think about this, when he's writing them, he, he's, he's again pointing them to Jesus, but we know something has went wrong. What could go wrong, right? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Because Paul is, is writing people that he's described in Colossians chapter 1 as the faithful. They are, as he just said, rooted and built and have been taught. But I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Even when you are rooted, you have a good foundation, and you have been instructed, it can still go wrong. And I want to show you two ways that it can potentially go wrong. Okay? If you're taking notes, these are in your notes. 
Number one, we reduce the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is historically called reductionism, all right? We reduce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then number two, we add to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the good news of God's redemption through Jesus, where Jesus fully paid for our sins on the cross, rose to new life, and offered us redemption and salvation through our repentance. And it is quite easy to try to reduce the gospel of Jesus. Think about that with me. How do we reduce the gospel of Jesus? It actually is what we could call a presentation of Jesus that is Jesus minus. It's actually not really Jesus at all. So how do we reduce the gospel of Jesus? We we reduce the gospel to a system of rules and requirements. We reduce it to a system of rules and requirements. You don't drink, you don't chew, you don't run with girls that do, right? That's that's what we think. It's to be a Christian, and when I was a, a young believer, I was specifically told that if you want to be a Christian, you you don't listen to that music that's on the radio, you go get rid of your CDs, you only listen to Christian music, This you only read Christian books, you don't have non-Christian friends. I mean, I was told, these were all the rules that were superimposed on me. Some of you have heard those rules. You, you can't be right with God if you don't have a quiet time every morning at 5 o'clock. I'm like, whoa, no way. I don't know that I'll ever be right with God. 5 o'clock is way early. You know, it's, it's easy to try to replace relationship with rules. Can I give you a practical example? Marriage. Okay, imagine the guy's about to get off at 5 o'clock. It's Friday afternoon. He's got a lot of things he could do that day, right? He's got a few text messages through the afternoon. His, his, his guy friends are going out. They're, they've invited him to go to a bar, to go spend some time, just kind of hanging out, drinking, playing some pool. But he goes, no, not going to do that. It's against the rules, right? His parents called and said, hey, you know, I, I, know, that, I know that you got some, some kids at home, and some, but, but we'd, we'd love to see you. Could you just come over and, and spend the evening, just you, just, we just want to see you. You know, no, and, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be home. This feels like this is against the rules. And a, a girl colleague comes by and says, hey, you know, I, I, I know you typically go straight home, but what, what, what do you think about today going out and maybe, maybe just stopping and grabbing a beer right after work? Well, that's against the rules. So he goes home, right? And he walks in the house and he's helping with the kids and wife's getting dinner ready. And he goes, baby, you know what? The boys invited me to go out today. They're at a bar. They're drinking. And I wanted to go. I wanted to go. But I know the rules said no. So I'm here. I'm here. And my parents called and asked me to come spend time with them, without you guys, of course, without you. And I said, I said, I know that 
the rules say I'm supposed to. So I said no. The rules say no. I thought about it, but I wanted to. And then, you know, Charlene that I work with, real cute girl, she asked me to go get a beer. And I wanted to go. I thought, man, it would be great to spend some time with her. But I know the rules said no. How do you think the wife's going to feel in that moment? You think he's going to have a good evening? Probably not. Probably not. Why? Because it's not about rules. It's about relationship. It's about, are you going home because this is what the rules say? Or are you going home because there's love and there's peace and there's joy and the love of that relationship is what you want more than anything else? All right. It's easy to try to replace relationship with rules. It's a reduction. And in many ways, it's an attempt to take Jesus out of the equation. How do we add to the gospel of Jesus? How do we add? All right, this is a Jesus plus presentation of the gospel. This is really, if, if you want to take a step back and, and do some study, this is what the, the sects of Christianity present, all right? So not the S-E-X, okay? So just get your minds up, okay? The S-C-C-T-S, all right? The sects of Christianity, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, all right? This is a Jesus plus presentation of the gospel. They take the gospel and then they add something to it, all right? So how do we add to the gospel of Jesus? We add other requirements outside of our repentance and God's sufficient grace made available through the cross of Jesus Christ. We add other requirements. What you're going to see as the Apostle Paul writes through Colossians 2 is that rules are at the heart of this. Rules are what we add and rules are what we reduce to. But pay attention to what he says here in verse 12. You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. So just again, the New Testament expectation was that all believers are baptized. Right? You were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life. Why? Because you did all those quiet times, because you read your Bible, because you forget. No, why? Because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature, now just stop there. He's going to deal with this a little bit throughout this book. Your sins, this is what you do. Your sinful nature, this is who you are. All right? Now notice that before Christ, we are sinners by definition because of our nature. I've never had to teach my kids to be bad. They figure out how to do that on their own all the time. Okay? I have to teach them to be good. Why? Because we're born with a broken, sinful nature. Notice what he says. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature that was not yet cut away. When we come to Jesus, when we give our lives to Jesus, that is removed. We are given a new birth into a new nature. Then God made you alive with Christ. Why? Why did he do this? For he forgave all our sins. Did he do this? Because you earned it, because you got up and did your quiet times, because you gave to the church, because you served. No, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by what? Nailing it to the cross. It's the cross of Jesus that is alone sufficient for our salvation. 
We cannot add to it. It is already done. It is already paid. The war is already over. It's already been won. But throughout this chapter, the Apostle Paul is pushing for us to find something that is really at the heart of his message, and that's freedom. And in this chapter, he gives absolutely brilliant advice about how to find freedom. So I'm going to just highlight a few verses and, and come back and make some observations on them. Here we go. Verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than Christ. Pay attention to those two things. Empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Sounds good, but it probably isn't good. See, there are things that sound good that aren't good for you. There are things that maybe even rationally in the moment, in the season, make sense to you, but do not theologically and spiritually align with the canon of God's Scripture. We have to learn to ask a question, is this worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? Because as Paul points out there, there is some wisdom that emerges from the spiritual climate of this world, not from the heart of God, which is, I think, why Romans 12, verse 2 says it this way, do not be conformed to this world, the image of a potter that is shaping clay into the image that he wants it to be. Don't be shaped and molded by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to ask this question with me today. How do you test and see if it's God? How do you do that? How do you test when you've come across something that it, it sounds good, kind of makes sense to me? How do I test it to see if it is indeed God? I'm going to give you three questions that I want you to learn to lean into as a filter to test wisdom to see if it does align with the heart of God. And number one, is the first question is, do the scriptures confirm it? And I'm not talking about like a half a scripture from 2 Maccabeus, okay? I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about literally the, the whole authority of God that is given to us through the canon of scripture, the whole counsel of God. Does this confirm that as wisdom. I mean, let me, give, let me give you an example, okay? If you're struggling financially, common advice is you, you need to learn how to make more money, right? If, if it's, a, it's a resource problem, right? You don't, you don't have enough. You, you probably need more. But when you read through Scripture, what you find is there are a lot of people who were given a lot who didn't do a lot with it, who got in a lot of trouble with God. And when we start to lean into the counsel about God's provision, God over and over and over 
begins to tell us, I've given you everything you need. The, the worldly advice that we need to get more is not biblical. The biblical advice is you need to manage better what you have been given. Do the scriptures confirm it? Number two, do those with authority in my life support it? We do not like this question. Okay? We don't. And I, I understand where for some of us, because of the interactions we've had with those who were unloving and in authority, it is really easy to disregard that. But I, I want you to hear that, that one of the most loving things that God does in life is establish authority over us and give them the option to speak into our lives. Hear me, okay? If you're a teenager or a kid in the room, I want you to know that one of the first questions should always be to mom and dad. Mom and dad, what do you think of this? I know you love me. I know you care about me. Give me some advice. How does this land with you? Okay, even as an adult, if you have a positive, loving relationship with your parents, one of the most helpful things we can do is to lean into that and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about it? At work. Okay, I remember when God began to drop in my, my heart the vision for planting this church. You know the first person I talked to? The first person I talked to was my wife, who holds significant authority in my life. And I talked with my pastor, who we had never had a slow transition of anybody leaving our church over just a long period of time. It had always been very quick, and it was right, just to be honest with you, it was scary. And the Lord showed up in that conversation, and he looked at me and said, I believe that's the Lord, I want you to go for it. And you want to know what I did? The next conversation with two, was with two pastors here in our community, and I sat down with them, and I said, you have authority in my life, you have authority in this community, here's what I think is going on. I want you to know today, I will let you kill it. If you don't think this is of the Lord, please tell me. And they both came back and said, we support that. God spoke because I was willing to humble myself. And that's what it is. It's, it takes some humility. It takes some humility to sit in front of somebody and share a dream. There are some of you that have sat down with me and said, hey, this is what I'm dreaming about. What do you see? Some of y'all are living in those dreams right now. Right? That's awesome. Right? Do, do those with authority in my life. Support it. And then number three, does the fruit align with God's stated desires for my life? There's sometimes it sounds real good up front, but where it's going to take you is not real good in the end. And you need to not only listen to the concept, but you need to look for the fruit. And when you start looking into the fruit and you start looking at the divisiveness that it's brought in other people's life and you start looking at the separation that it's caused and you start looking at the tensions that it's created, you start looking at it going, I don't want that. Why am I going to, I'm not going to get on that train over here if I know it's taking me there. The three questions, do the scriptures confirm it? Do those with authority in my life support it? And lastly, does the fruit align with God's stated desires for my life. Not everything that sounds good is good for you. Look at this. He's going to continue on in that chapter in verse 16 and 17. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink 
or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moons or ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. For not celebrating certain festivals, for, for, for not having a sound. Don't let anyone, can, this is really for a lot of modern American Christianity, this is foreign talk. You want to know what Paul is pointing to here? He's pointing to this simple reality. We are governed by a relationship, not by rules. We are governed in this pursuit of Jesus and in the kingdom of God. We are governed by a relationship, not by rules. Now, I need to pause right there just so I can say this. I believe God wants to free you up to have some convictions in life. Okay? I, I believe that as believers, as we dive in, God's going to steer our hearts. There are going to be some things that just prick our hearts and we, we bleed over those causes. I mean, y'all know me. I can't hear anybody talking about a foster kid or our foster community without just weeping. Why, why do we get involved in that? To be honest with you, it's me. Because God's given me a conviction over that. And there's many of you in here that have come up and said, we'll support that, we'll help that. Why, why do we, as missions... Why, why do we focus on kids? Why do we focus on supporting and providing kids who are impoverished in developing nations opportunities they'd never have? Because I, I recognize the fruitfulness of that. And we have a conviction towards that. Convictions happen on the inside. They're, they're birthed out of our relationship with God. As God begins to move in our lives, so, and it's okay for you to have a cause that just, it just makes you cry. It's something that you want to stand up and stand up for. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being convicted about the way you should live your life. To say, I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to eat that. It's okay. It's okay to have those convictions. But the Apostle Paul is not talking about convictions. He's talking about rules. And rules are other people's convictions that are imposed upon you from the outside. Now, the, the Bible makes some things thoroughly black and white. It is not up for your interpretation. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. That's not up for you to interpret that. God makes that ultimately clear. But relationship cultivates convictions. And what you come to find out when you begin to look at the, the danger of replacing relationship with rules is that if all you have is rules, you don't have love. If that guy on Friday night says, man, I would love to go out with the boys, and I was really thinking about going out with Charlene, it sounded like a really fun time with her, but I came home because all that stuff's against the rules. That's not love. That's not love. Love is the ability 
to consciously choose to make the volitional choice of I, I want you, I choose you. And what God has positioned you through breaking away the sinful nature, God has positioned you to make that choice. So look at what he says in verse 23. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Some of y'all know that because you've been trying to live by rules. You've been trying to, and it just has not helped. I keep struggling with the same thing over and over again. I, kind of, I try to put this rule up, and I'm not saying there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with boundaries. There's nothing wrong with guardrails. But I think Paul is, is pointing to something, that we find freedom through consistency, not intensity. Did you notice the language that he said there? That these rules require pious self-denial. In other words, like a, a prideful overexertion of myself. I don't know if y'all have ever read Aesop's fable. You've probably heard it before, the story of the tortoise and the hare. I love, Dave Ramsey tells a story about meeting with a millionaire. He sits down and he's like, I, you, your family is doing so good. I mean, your, your kids are winning with money. Your grandkids are winning with, with money. What, what did you do? And he says, well, Dave, it's real simple. Every chance I ever had, I read Aesop's fable to them. It's like, okay, I mean, no, but really, like, what practical advice did you give them? What, how did you, he's like, no, Dave, I read Aesop's fable. Every time I got a chance to be around them. And you know why I did that? Because every time you read that story, the tortoise wins. And he's like, that's great, I, that's wonderful. But really, what was the practical advice? What systems did you have? He's like, Dave, you're missing the point. Every time you read the story, the tortoise wins. Think about your marriage. There have been times of intense passion. But if that is the expectation for always, it will never work. Intensity has its place, but consistency wins the race. Now I want to go back to what Paul said earlier, and we, we kind of glanced over this, but I want to really lean into this as we close up today. These rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is the reality. All of those rules, and what he had listed earlier was what you eat and drink and the, the ceremonies that went around and the, the sat, all of those things were just, they're shadows of what's to come. And what's to come is Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is the reality. And here's the ultimate problem with rules. The more we look to rules, the less we're looking to the ruler. So I'm just here today to invite you back. 
to a moment that for many of us happened a long time ago when we came face to face with the ruler of the universe and we handed over our life and put it into his hands and said, lead me on from this moment forward. I trust you. I trust you with every second, every moment, every day. I trust you with my family. I trust you with my kids. I trust you with my job. I'm just asking you to come back to that moment. Come back to that relationship. And again, trust him with it. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, We encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.